So welcome everybody. It is June 10th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And this is uh, Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. And tonight the subject is uh, still the second of the uh, stages, Knowledge that Discerns Conditionality. Um, but uh, I did want to open it up for uh, questions first, if anybody has any. All right. So um, we talked about the first way uh, of uh, seeing conditionality, that everything arises and um, passes based on conditions, and then our reaction to the conditions and that we can infer from one such pattern of arising and passing that all such patterns of arising and passing uh, that fit th that criteria will react in the same way so that we don't actually have to track everything. If we miss some things, that's okay. And then in the second uh, way of seeing conditionality, uh, we see that uh, visual experience arises because the capacity to see has contact with an object that can be seen. Um, the auditory experience arises because our capacity to sense auditory objects uh, contacts an object that can be heard and the consciousness of that experience arises. And this is true of the other sense gates, taste, smell, and, the, and then the uh, felt sense of the body. We also understand that uh, these things arise because of the nature of karma and rebirth and death. We understand that we were born based on uh, the, the uh, activities of uh, clinging and ignorance uh, uh, and uh, that if you're an ethical person and you engage in an ethical way of being that you can uh, have the expectation that the karma that unfolds then would be good karma. And if you behave in an unethical way, that uh, those unskillful actions lead to uh, negative or bad karma arising. Um, one of the things that I think so interesting about this is that that's very different than uh, what we would like to have happen happening and what we would not like to have happening not happening. So, um, I find this particularly true of, of trying to live an ethical life, trying to be uh, present and uh, make in, uh, skillful intention and then follow through with skillful action and then watch what happens and then re repeat the process, take in the data, what happened, evaluate um, um, what what uh, the outcome of that intention and action was uh, formulating a new intention um, and skillfully acting and then seeing what else happens and it's in this process that it's easy to get swept up in of course the wanting of something the craving of something for happen to happen or the not wanting what's happening or just an indifference to what is happening and then uh, not accepting uh, the outcome. And this is a interesting thing. One of the, the qualities of my character that is uh, repeated to me over and over again by a wide range of people is that I'm persistent, that I'm doggedly persistent. I just keep going uh, for the bone um, in the things that I, I'm trying to get to happen. This may uh, come out of having been in the film business for so long because it, it's just a, a, a heaping amount of projection uh, in order to get to, to a place where anything at all happens. And it's a lot of work to get into a position even to be able to uh, swing the bat, if we can uh, descend into a baseball metaphor <laughs> or maybe cricket. Um, <clears throat> But how do you know? I was talking to my teacher, Dan, about this, uh, and I asked him, 
if uh, you're diligent and you live an ethical life and you uh, try to make skillful intentions and actions, can you reasonably expect that what follows from that to be good karma? And he said, you could. As it says here in this second way of seeing conditionality. From a quantum perspective, perhaps um, <clears throat> you take an action and then what unfolds in the next moment is all of the possibilities of the next uh, action that you could take, the next choice that you could make. It all unfolds in front of you. And you could take any one, uh, if you could see them, to, to select them. And then we get into a conversation about view and what you let into the view, what you see is there. We can get into these conditioned, rigid views and see only the things that we're used to seeing, only the things that we expect to see. And so the choices that arise that are not in those categories, we don't even notice are available to us and so that we don't take them. We don't even think to take them. I was this is meditation and attachment. And so I was uh, talking with a student earlier today about this. Um, she's quite preoccupied. And one of the things about the preoccupied view is that uh, there is no delight. It wasn't an experience in childhood because the preoccupied nature of the relationship with the primary caregiver. Remember, you haven't 85% chance of having the same attachment strategy as your primary caregiver has. And if you have a preoccupied caregiver, uh, delight is not one of the currencies of preoccupation. Um, children in uh, a preoccupied dynamic with a caregiver learn helplessness as a way of uh, getting the attention that they want. Uh, and while that works in that dyadic relationship with the caregiver, when you go out into life and you present yourself as helpless, um, particularly if you're not helpless, uh, it creates a, 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 um, a kind of uh, disjointed experience for the other person. You see somebody in front of you is completely capable, and then they present to you the sense that they're helpless and it doesn't actually add up for you, it doesn't make sense. Initially, you could uh, even uh, accept that and then attempt to help them, but then recognize that over and over again, they cannot be helped. The reason that they can't be helped is because uh, they're not actually helpless and don't need the help. What they want is proximity, connection, but because their conditioning was such that an authentic expression of needing connection and needing proximity was unacceptable. And so uh, the, uh, the inauthentic strategy arises. Really what that loop is like is the preoccupied person makes the gesture to help you, um, not because they want to help you, but because they want you to respond to their needs. It's a kind of manipulation. The sense of helplessness is a manipulation, and they're not really about the help, they're about the interaction, the connection, the engagement. They don't say, I want to engage you. They present a problem for you to solve. And if you get skillful at helplessness, what you realize is that the more unsolvable the problem is, the longer the connection lasts. And so then what you begin to do is present unsolvable problems. And then you realize if you add to that mix uh, uh, a, a sense of moral judgment that the other person is capable and there's, therefore is obligated to help you, uh, if they're a good person, you put the other person into a trap um, so that their expectation of you is that you are going to present to them a problem that cannot be solved. Where in that equation is the currency of delight? Imagine every time you see a person, they present to you a problem that you can't solve, which creates in you a sense of helplessness. Christian?
Could you break down like maybe specifically the dynamic of of the child with the caregiver? Say the child makes some bid for connection with the caregiver and what is the caregiver's reaction that they then kind of shuffle the child into some mode of being that that they become helpless? Uh, does my question make sense? Yeah. So what you're looking at in, in the development of uh, a preoccupied adult uh, or it's an anxious ambivalent is the child category is inconsistency. So one time the child could present themselves in needing connection and the caregiver could see that and respond to it. Another time the child could present a, a very similar expression uh, looking for connection and the caregiver could um, miss it because they're misattuned. And so it doesn't produce a response that's predictable. Uh, and sometimes uh, the caregiver could respond in a negative way to their request for connection. And so the child begins to learn, and we all do this in all attachment strategies. A, uh, we develop a list of uh, preferred strategies, that is to say, strategies that work to get the things that we need. And because the uh, caregiver in the preoccupied dynamic is so unpredictable, the child uh, can't figure out what to do to get the thing that they need, which creates a sense of helplessness in the child. There may also be a, a reward for the helplessness. Um, one of the things that is difficult for uh, preoccupied caregivers to tolerate is the child's need to explore the environment. And so uh, either the, the caregiver intentionally inhibits the child's exploration or they're punishing when the child returns either through uh, being ignored or actually uh, some kind of um, anger at having been abandoned. So what you have is the parent, the, the caregiver responding uh, in a retaliatory uh, way to the child who returns from their exploration. Um, and so the child becomes apprehensive about that rather than uh, to, uh, having the experience of delight. So it, in a secure dynamic, the child is encouraged to explore and discover. And when they discover something, the caregiver responds with a sense of delight in what the child has discovered. And so their expectation is that when they explore and they come back and share the exploration, that uh, people will delight in what they've discovered. But in a preoccupied dynamic, the child is unable to predict how the caregiver is going to respond, but their expectation is never of delight. It's of uh, indifference or uh, some kind of uh, punishing behavior. So the child uh, is on guard and constantly apprehensive rather than, uh, and that's their expectation. <clears throat> When the child exhibits helplessness, of course, they don't explore. And so that, that could be rewarded by the caregiver in, in that dynamic. The child sticks by the parent and doesn't explore and that behavior is rewarded and the exploration behavior is discouraged. And so and that, that, way the, uh, that way the parent doesn't have the abandonment fear when the child is sticking by? Right, they use the child to regulate their own separation anxiety, their, their emotions. And if the child is absent, then they, they have the same effect that preoccupied people have. When you, when you displace the experience of the other, the empathetic experience of the other person as the primary emotional experience and your own emotional experience becomes secondary, uh, then you have to have proximity to the, the person in order to have an empathetic experience of what you, you consider as your, as your own emotional experience. And so that's what happens. You know, if there's a, a role reversal, uh, which can happen, then 
the child goes off to explore, but when the child comes back, the parent is dysregulated. And then the parent looks for the child to regulate them. And it's often an overwhelming experience for a small child to attempt to regulate the emotions of an adult when they're dysregulated. And so that begins to inhibit their exploration because they don't want to be separated from their uh, caregiver, not because they don't want to go and explore, but they don't want to come back to an impossible situation that they then are going to have to figure out how to solve. Um, they don't have to explore if they're helpless, and so they manifest helplessness. And then the, that can uh, trigger uh, an overprotective stance on the part of the caregiver so that they, they have an out from having to explore. How's that? It's terrible, but it's it's coherent. <laughs> um, you, you know, you have an 85% chance of having the same attachment strategy as your caregiver. And most of the time, the caregivers are trying to do their best for their child because they love their child. So we want to cleave apart love and care. You could have a very loving home and still have care that did not produce secure functioning. It's not your fault, of course, but then if you look at it from the perspective of your caregiver, uh, they didn't have a choice either about that att early attachment relationship. And they uh, learned what they needed to learn in the same way that you did. What they didn't do is recognize that it, that it was a problem and solve it before they passed it along to their kids. You know, the circumstances of your uh, caregivers um, may have not allowed that to happen just because of other things that needed to be attended to that were more urgent on the survival scale. So I think it's quite remarkable. Also, I have to say that the, the, um, the tendency to pay attention to things that are unsolvable is so unpleasant that most of the time we don't pay attention to them. And up until quite recently, uh, a good enough understanding of attachment and attachment dynamics and what to do about that were really not widely available. If, even if your caregivers recognized that they had difficulties and that they wanted to change them, there wasn't much that we knew to do to change that. Um, I remember my grandmother saying to me when I was 14 or 15, um, you need to make sure that the people you involve yourself with come from a good family because there's not much you can do about it if they don't. They can be lovable, they can be fun, they can be smart, they can be great in a lot of ways, but if the family dynamics are not good, uh, you won't be able to, to have a stable uh, relationship with them. And there's not that much that you can do about it. So that uh, prior to really understanding how to shift these things, it was merely a selection because they're so stable and, uh, and so uh, uh, without understanding exactly what to do, very difficult to change. You know, you have a 70% chance of having the same attachment strategy as your great-grandmother. That's quite a high number. It's transgenerationally stable, the transmission of attachment. Jake? So is that why um, previously the AAI and the attachment research was primarily academic and not really clinical until this new model came along? Um, I mean, how does that match up? It seems like previous uh, research with AI seemed to indicate that, like, it wasn't really changeable. Well, really to get a sense of how new this is, um, the, the beginning of attachment strategy was a after the end of the Second World War, so 70 years ago. 
And really from not much, they formulated this idea, which took decades of research to actually um, begin to understand and formulate a description of the dynamics. And then um, it was academic and research oriented because they were attempting to validate the theory to make sure that it was correct. Mm -hmm. um, John Bowlby first presented attachment theory to the world in 1986. I see. So um, any idea really takes 30 years in our culture, even with media the way that it is, to disseminate enough that there's enough of an interest in it that it becomes uh, a dialogue. And so you may, may notice that the wave of, of um, the interest in attachment theory is, is still building and this ha hasn't really even crashed. And then um, the dominant form of addressing any kind of psychological issue has been psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, some, some kind of um, interpersonal uh, talk approach, um, uh, and more recently the, the pharmaceutical approach. You know, the behaviorists uh, think it's conditioning, the neuroscientist thinks it's brain chemistry. And um, and so the researchers, once they decided that it was really uh, solid, um, um, released it into the therapeutic community to see if someone could devise a way of addressing it. Um, I, when I was talking to Mary Main about this, she said that there was a, 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 a nucleus in the treatment community that came to them and asked them to release the data. And uh, they did an analysis of where the data was and the, where the, the, under, the validation of the theory was. And they asked for uh, an, a, an additional seven years to complete the research stage, and then they would release the results into the therapeutic community, which was about 20 years ago. So then we've had uh, these groups, different groups of people around the world attempting to solve the puzzle of attachment conditioning, first understand what it is to be able to describe the dynamics of it, and then to understand it well enough to uh, create a mechanism that you could change it with. And so you know, uh, because we're meditation-oriented at Meta Group, that we we like the uh, uh, Dan Brown, David Elliott at all group, and the research that they did in order to create the three-pillar approach, which is the ideal parent figure. Uh, which is the first pillar, the mentalizing uh, training, which is the second pillar. And the third pillar is the psychoeducation. We uh, do something slightly different than they do, which is we use uh, meditation as the mentalizing training, whereas uh, they use uh, the therapeutic relationship to, to do the mentalizing training. Uh, but we know that our our our, our we've been able to validate our approach through uh, before and after AAIs, and they've been able to validate their approach with before and after AAIs. So we have a, a sense that it's pretty solid. And not so, a long, it's, it's not like, you know, psychoanalysis, <laughs> the 20 year right. cure. <laughs> And also, like, you, you know, you don't need to go through um, like six years of college to be able to do to help others with this sort of work. So it's kind of interesting that well, that's, like it could be... that's the meditation approach to it, that you yeah. teach people to meditate. And um, one of the things that we know about uh, that is it's not a generic meditation. Mm -hmm. you, you couldn't do, say, uh, mindfulness meditation, a simple mindfulness meditation, and expect to see much change in your capacity to mentalize. Um, you need to, to have a pointed, 
practice, which is designed to explicitly cause mentalizing practice in order for that to happen. I really like Vipassana because there is that piece anyway. You're, you're pulling everything apart and tracking it and watching how the pieces work. Um, and, uh, but then if you have specific assignments of what to watch, as we know, depending on how you practice, uh, the insights that come from that way of practicing unfold. So you practice in one way and you have uh, certain insights that arise from that. You practice in another way and you have certain insights that arise from that. And so uh, we have, uh, in our uh, approach, developed these strategies of meditation that you go through that are intended to generate specific experiences that point toward increased mentalizing. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this, I was talking about it with a group today. Um, there are 14 aspects of secure functioning that are measured in the AAI. Uh, and they're all, and we talk about them as discrete skills that you can independently develop. If you have low mentalizing, of course, you can't operate all 14 of them in a dynamic expression at the same time, because you can't keep track of them. You don't mentalize them. So one of the reasons why insecure attachment strategies are more rigid than the full flexibility and uh, dynamics of secure functioning is that the mentalizing capacity isn't capable of hold, holding so many um, balls in the air. Um, but you can uh, begin where your capacity to mentalize is and develop the, the skills individually, discreetly, which is also one of the things about Vipassana meditation you divide it and you explore a, an area of sensing and then you divide and then you explore another area of sensing and then you explore another area of sensing. Uh, and then as we understand from this second stage, there's an inference that if you've under, if you've understand the dynamics of one sensing experience completely, that all sensing experiences in that category could be understood in that way which gives the, the boost to your capacity to understand what's happening. Um, and it, it isn't so complex. Um, and part of that is because consciousness is very limited. You can't hold dozens of objects in consciousness at the same time because there isn't the capacity for that. Once you, of course, realize that the, that selfing experience, that consciousness experience uh, is not the whole picture and you can um, step into the just the flow of uh, um, my teachers call it wisdom or wisdom mind, uh, where you don't have to control everything or be in charge of everything. You can just let it uh, flow and observe the flow. Um, there's lots and lots of information that comes from that. Stacy. Thanks, George. I have a question for you. Um, so oh, no. <laughs> I know, I hope I can articulate it. Um, I am a parent and I have a child, a son who's almost 12. And when I'm listening to your you know, just all of this talk about attachment. And I can hear the things for my own childhood and where I um, didn't get what I needed and I can work with that. It's when I, when I hear the ways that I know that I'm failing my own child uh -huh. and, um, and that, you know, it can like wake me up in the middle of the night with a complete panic attack and just um feelings like i i want to be better than i am and i'm not and i i you know i i i try to attune with him but sometimes dinner has to get made and you know like 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 i i think i i think that there's like a perfectionist in me that i want to do it perfectly and the thought of messing up my kid is just uh, enough to make me sort of turn away from it all and kind of, you know, avoid it. Um, but 
Anyway, I think I'm rambling. I think you, do you understand my question? Like I do. how to, okay. Um, so it's also important to understand um, what's happening and what's appropriate uh, in terms of where you are in the moment. Um, as he enters puberty, what's going to happen is that his cognitive ability is going to be developing and he'll be able to evaluate the uh, childhood experience that you provided for him. And if he decides that uh, you had his interest in mind, even if you didn't do it perfectly, uh, as you switch from being the authoritarian protective parent to the coach and mentor parent, which is what this period of time is, he will still rely on you for uh, your advice and support. It's one way to gauge whether or not you did it good enough. Remember, it's, it's good enough. It's not perfect we're trying to go for. If you didn't do that and he decides that you actually uh, took care of him in a way that, was, that really served your own needs and didn't serve his, then you're going to have more conflict with him. But there's a reason why you couldn't express the things that you just expressed here to him and to, to try and move the relationship into uh, collaboration more, um, uh, to convey to him that you love him and that you want to care for him in a way that's meaningful to him. Uh, and, uh, and that also that you understand that uh, as he goes through this process of maturation, that he's going to be looking for uh, um, things that are interesting and meaningful to him and, and support his exploration as he transitions from the dependent child to the youth that's able to explore on his own. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then just in terms of like my own guilt and shame over not being as good a parent as I, as I want to be, is that just more the meditation part well, for giving myself and one of the things to do and use the meditation for is to develop the capacity to concentrate so that you're not distracted. You don't need to be continuously attuned to the child. You just need to attune enough that he feels the connection and feels the emotional regulation. So that if you concentrate on, on whether the quality of the attunement is good and also on whether he's regulated enough, then uh, you can then stop doing that and, and, and make dinner. Um, it, it's the, one of the things that happens is that uh, the, the, the mind is scattered and the attention is divided and it never settles them, the, the experience for the other person. Whereas if you could just uh, uh, attune and hold the attunement long enough for the for your son to feel noticed and to feel seen and understood and regulated, then you don't have to do it anymore and you can go uh, to the other things that you need to do. But if you, if you don't give enough attention to it, then he never settles and his demand is uh, unceasing. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. Good. Oh, you know, when kids hit that, uh, that part that the puberty uh, happens, the brain changes, and then we enter into adolescence, uh, you as a parent need to become their booster and their coach and their, their uh, mentor uh, and let them explore and have a, a sounding board that they can discuss what the outcomes are so that they can become more and more skillful and also understand more and more what has meaning to them so that their efforts are actually uh, um, well directed. And, and if you can make that transition, they will rely on you and, and you will actually have a sense of safety because they'll actually confide in you what's happening. And if you don't do that, they won't confide in you and will make you more frightened about what's actually happening with them which might make you more restricting or more controlling, which will have the opposite effect of really what you want, which is that they, they remain in a collaborative relationship with you. Um, 
So we're slightly off the, the second stage here. This is the second part of uh, the second stage. Life happens because we're reborn. In the Theravada model of enlightenment, uh, if you uh, become an arahat, you're not reincarnated anymore. This is different than the Mahayana school where uh, you take the bodhisattva vow to be reincarnated until all sentient beings are uh, liberated. But in the Hinayana view, that, that isn't really the case. You want to go for enlightenment so that you can escape uh, the wheel of uh, uh, death and rebirth. I was in Myanmar uh, traveling, and they have uh, in, in the north uh, countryside uh, one of the tallest standing Buddhas in the world, and has 31 floors, which matches the different uh, realms. And uh, normally when you go there, there's an elevator that takes you to the 31st floor. And so you start in the highest realm and you walk down the stairs through each of the, the realms, descending into the hell realms at the end before you come out. But on the day that we went, <laughs> the elevator was broken. And it was in the hot time in the tropics. Uh, and uh, so... Um, I thought, well, we're here. Let's see how far we can get in this lifetime. And so we start up the stairs and go through one hell realm after another uh, and through the animal realms. And finally, we make it to, to the, the human realm, which for both of us, uh, I was traveling with my friend Sun Yu, and uh, um, for both of us, it was clearly enough for this lifetime. <laughs> And then we walked back down through the through the the hell realms. Um, quite interesting. Um, in you know uh, in Myanmar, the there's the the, the these uh, um, religious sites are painted and decorated, and they're they're statuary, and it's very vivid the depiction of these kinds of things in in a kind of um, it's almost uh, like a comic book in a way as you're moving through it. It's quite quite delightful to me, and to see these very graphic depictions of demons ripping um, bodies apart and all the rest of it. That is this sense of it. So skilled and unskilled, uh, unskillful attachment to this life leads to rebirth. Uh, and uh, it says, uh, for instance, in the text that if you're skillful, even if you have ignorance and the other uh, contributors to rebirth, that when you are reborn, you're, you're born in a good place and that your senses engage uh, you know, good objects so that the smells are sweet, the, the, the the, the touch is uh, sweet, and if you engage in bad karma, the circumstances of your re rebirth are unfortunate, and all of the sense objects of your, that you'll experience will be foul and uh, negative. I don't know that I have much sense of that. Um, what I have a sense of is that it's very hard to know uh, with the very limited way in which uh, uh, human beings seem to experience things, uh, certainly the way that I experience things, um, how these um, models are, are knowable as true or not true. Um, I don't notice that, I don't know that that is an agnostic view, uh, simply the my own experience of not believing it but at the same time not disbelieving it um, and, and not an ambivalence um, i felt the same way about geometry uh, when um, i would go into class and i would sit with my teacher and he would explain to me how geometry works and i would apply the formulas and get the results that were supposed to happen when you did that 
it still wasn't something I could believe in, uh, if that makes sense. I just thought, yes, that happens, but um, it doesn't really make sense to me why that happens. Um, I think of it maybe as a kind of confusion, but it's always been a good way to learn for me to be confused by these things and then to try and make sense out of them. In the Theravada model, in the first path, which is stream entry, you eradicate three of the 10 fetters and you're reincarnated seven more times. In the second path, which is the weakening of craving and aversion, uh, it's called a once returner because you're reincarnated one more time. When you reach the third path, it's called a non-returner. So you eradicate uh, um, craving and aversion and you're no longer reincarnated. And then in the fourth path, Arahatship, you eradicate the remaining five fetters. So a belief in self, a belief in religious ceremony, uh, and uh, the, the fetter of skeptical doubt are relieved in stream entry, the weakening of craving and aversion in the second path, eradication of the fetters of craving and aversion in the third path, and then the uh, eradication of restlessness and agitation, the craving for birth in a material form, the craving for rebirth in an immaterial form and conceit. If you know this, then you look at the world. This is the description of uh, development or liberation uh, at people and see if you can notice this. Do you notice, for instance, uh, someone who is free from craving and aversion should be third path quite highly developed. Do you notice somebody who's eradicated all of the fetters? So I think one way to begin to understand this is to understand what it is that when we say liberated, we're talking about and then to understand how they might manifest and then evaluate whether somebody has those manifestations or not. Jake? I just wanted to ask you, how do you think that the Mahayana Vajrayana model that you work with with Dan um, and their model of complete purification or uh, Samye, how do you think that relates to the Theravada model of the eradication of the fetters and uh, how, how, did that, how does that line up? Um, I don't know really. Uh, okay. Early on in my practice, um, I wanted to, to, to be relieved of the, the pattern of suffering that I experienced most of my life. Um, in the, the first part of my practice, the teachers said that for householders, liberation wasn't possible, that it was a kind of accommodation to the suffering, that that was what was possible. And it, it reminded me of the psychotherapy, you know, Freud's, uh, we want to be free of neurotic suffering so that we can enjoy actual suffering. <laughs> but, but there's no way out of actually suffering the human condition. And you could look at that in, in terms of the Four Noble Truths of of Buddhism, that, that, that this human condition and all of the things that are a part of it are that. But I, um, I tell this story. Um, when I went to my first Vipassana meditation class, and this is after having been a Dharma orphan for a long, long time. A Dharma orphan, I think of as somebody who doesn't have a teacher and uses uh, reading and other uh, uh, sort of research and, and then trying to understand how to practice that um, as, the, as that, uh, a Dharma orphan. Um, in the first meditation of Vipassana class I went to in Venice uh, in 92, um, the teacher said, 
I just want everybody to tell tell me why you came. What is it that you're hoping to get out of your meditation practice? And, you know, maybe it's just because I grew up in the Midwest and there's a kind of collective naivete that uh, goes along with that. Uh, I said, I wanted to be enlightened. And it was not a kind laughter that arose from that, from the other group. Um, and that was, you know, that was really disappointing that it was simply not possible. But then I thought, why would all of these people around the world be engaged in a 2,500 year old practice that didn't work? It didn't make sense to me. And so what, what I began to do is look for teachers who at least were willing to talk about it. So you find uh, in the Tibetan world, of course, it's, it's considered really bad manners to talk about attainments because it can create envy uh, for states. Um, and what I found uh, in the, those uh, groups, you know, 20 so years ago, a lot of competition around states, uh, trying to get into this chanic state or this um, visual, you know, all sorts of different states that can come up from uh, different kinds of practice. Um, because uh, of an absence of uh, really senior teachers that had uh, developed a practice enough to know how to guide people, which is okay in the beginning. I mean, you don't need your teacher to be so far ahead of you that you can't understand what they're talking about. They need to be nearer than that, but also far enough ahead that they can direct you in, in, in a way that would be skillful. Um, but I find that in, in the West, one of the main difficulties is that uh, if you really are interested in liberation and are interested in a deep practice, that the, 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 the choices of where to go are, are not abundant. And so then um, we turn toward Asian practice, but then in Asian practice, there's a cultural difference in, in the meaning of almost everything. And so there's a transliteration process that needs to happen in order to even understand what's being communicated. So that translation, one of the things that's interesting to me about Dan Brown as a teacher is that uh, Menray, his teacher, asked him to take the uh, traditional texts and translate them and then uh, create a pedagogy about how to teach them to Westerners so that it was uh, the transliteration uh, was unnecessary, that he would do the transliteration and present them in a way that uh, people who grew up in a Western culture could understand the uh, teachings. Am I getting even close to your question? That, that, I mean, you answered my question when you said, you know, you hadn't considered that. And then I'm continuing to learn from whatever you're sharing additionally, getting perspective from it. Um, I would go to sit with Sasaki Roshi, um, um, but he wasn't kind enough for me to consider as a teacher. One of the things about my my early conditioning was that it was so uh, uh, difficult, I guess might be a way to describe it, is that uh, for me to, to feel, or at least then, I think probably it's different now, but then the, the, the people that I was willing to be vulnerable in front of needed to exhibit an extraordinary level of kindness, or I was too afraid to do it. Uh, and he was never kind. Uh, sometimes, particularly Asian masters, seem quite uh, gruff and difficult. Uh, but the reason I never really went into a, a Tibetan practice before Dan was for the same reason. I, I would go and meet these teachers, but they were too unkind for me to really uh, be interested in opening a dialogue with them. Mm. So, uh, but then you have this paradigm of, say, something, someone like Sasaki Roshi, who, uh, you know, uh, after he stopped teaching, was accused of years and years and years of harming students. 
and yet uh, he he was uh, said to be this highly uh, liberated person. And so, how does that play out right. as well? So right. there has to be this, uh, for me, uh, this integrity between uh, the teacher and this extraordinary level of kindness, and then also that their conduct is in line with. Uh, um, the teaching, although, uh, you know, as it was explained to me that the Mahayana teachers need to guarantee their reincarnation by in intentionally cultivating a fault that would cause them to be reincarnated, uh, which I uh, can take at face value, but also crinkle my nose. We have talked quite a bit, and um, we are supposed to meditate uh, because, as we all know, talk is cheap and practice will get you where you want to go. <laughs> so uh, we'll just do a see, hear, feel, focus in, focus out. Again, uh, the focus is on conditionality, noticing that the, the, uh, the situation, the conditions of the present moment uh, lead to the opening of the next moment and all the possibilities that are there. And then the choice that you make shuts down all of the possibilities except the one you chose. And then that opens into all of the possibilities that are in the next moment that have been linked to the moment uh, before and the moment before that. And one of the ways to understand this is to not do, uh, don't, do anything except track where your attention goes. Um, in terms of mentalizing, of course, if you uh, allow it, uh, the, the flow of things, if you hold the mind too loosely and, and the mind gets caught up in uh, the spontaneous side of things, you get swept up into the content and lose the meditation. If you get pulled too far onto the monitoring side of things, then the mind, that is to say, you hold the mind too tightly, then it shuts down all of the activations and you just go into a kind of restful shutdown place. So we want to be in balance there so that there's activations arising and passing, which you want to cling to them. And you just want to be able to watch where they're coming and going. We're going to do a see here, feel, focus in, focus out. So six objects of meditation, exterior sight space, see out, internal visual thinking, see in, um, uh, external sound space, hear out, internal auditory thinking, hear in, the felt sense of the body, feel out, and the emotional content in the body, feel in. I'll give some more instructions as we begin. So any comments or questions about that practice? Michael? Um, what do you do when your attention moves quicker than you can note? Um, you mean label? Yes, label. To drop the labeling and just note okay. directly. If you can track your attention moving that fast, your concentration is good enough that you don't need the labeling. Yeah, thank you. Kristen? Hi, can you hear me? I can. Okay. Um, I experienced the same thing last week, which is when it comes to feeling out and feeling in, I can't distinguish between the two. They both feel the same to me. Okay, so then that's just a question of sensory clarity and developing it. Emotional sensations that are related to the present moment tend to play out on the surface of the body. So face, front of the throat, front of the torso, uh, inside of the arms, inside of the legs, a vibratory energy. So you're really looking for the energies along the surface of the body rather than something deeper in. That's one way to begin to discern them. 
Another way is by elimination. If you can track uh, the physicality of the body, the weightiness, the heaviness of it, the temperature on it, uh, respiration, circulation, digestion, the efforting to hold the posture, anything that's left might be emotional. So you can come at it from both ways. But just keep at it. Uh, think of it as an invitation to invite uh, conscious awareness of the emotion. Good enough? Yes, thank you. Someone else? Okay. I have a question. Okay. What do you classify as smell as? Is that a feel? Yeah, feel out. There might be a, an emotional reaction to the uh, smell, which would be feel in. So, um, I, have, uh -huh. I was wondering um, about um, what you were saying about the kindness of a teacher, very important. Uh, and you were talking about the Zen teachers, and uh, I've heard that before, but it sounds like an um, important point. And the other question is, uh, are there are, are any of these recorded where we could listen to these again? Yeah, uh, it becomes the uh, Meditation and Attachment podcast, which is available through our website, metagroup.org, and it's distributed in a few other places, but I can't keep track of it. Any Is it free or any charge for it? No, no, it's you just go to the website and there's a tab called podcast. Mm -hmm. Then you can listen to it and then there's a link that directs you to wherever it's being housed and it, it's all just available. Oh, thank you. So I have a retreat starting on Saturday. There's still a few places left in it if, in case you want to uh, join it. Tomorrow is the last day to sign up for it. So take a look at that. It's on the website. In July, I'm starting a series of day-longs. Uh, so there'll be four day-longs covering the meditation and attachment level one. So three on the level one stuff. And then the uh, uh, fourth one is called uh, meditation and attachment for relationships. So it really goes into the, the dynamics of secure functioning relationships. Michael? Uh, the other day you said that there's sort of two tracks for the retreat. Yeah. Um, there's like a traditional enlightenment and then a meditation for attachment type stuff. Yeah. Um, could you elaborate on like how that shows up in terms of the retreat? Um, like how, what are two tracks made of? Can... So it's a meta Vipassana retreat. So we start with meta practice and then we do the Vipassana side. If you wanted to do just a straight up um, uh, progress of insight style retreat, which is how I would teach it, then uh, you would be doing the practices that illustrate uh, those things and moving through that. So in the beginning, it's just developing uh, the distinction between mental and physical phenomena, then uh, the conditionality piece, which brings in mind. And then the third stage is uh, exploring uh, uh, Ananta, Nietzsche, and Dukkha. The fourth stage is then into arising and passing. Fifth stage is dissolution. Um, and then uh, how, depending on how long the dissolution lasts, you're dumped into the knowledge of the miseries, fearfulness that there is no self, um, uh, misery that uh, nothing lasts, and disgust that you're stuck in a body. And then you look for the undercurrent that pulls you out uh, uh, the desire to no longer suffer, which then uh, takes you into reobservation, where you begin to integrate deeply that that's the nature of the human condition, so that when you experience those things, you no longer suffer from them, which dumps you out onto this plateau of equanimity, which then uh, leads to fruition or non-fruition, and then you're dumped out at the end of the path and begin again at the beginning. Um, and then we have, so far, two people who are just going to do pool work on the whole retreat and nothing else. They're just going to sit and release their somaticized emotional experience. Uh, 
So I might have like one corner for just people doing pool work. <laughs> um, you just have to let me know in, in the first interview, which is uh, on Sunday, which which way you want to go. And then we can. And then um, one of the ways that I like to teach is that everybody has to use statements that you probably know this from having practice with me before, but you can't ask questions. You can only make statements about where your practice is. Um, this is to undermine the preoccupied people in the group from changing the subject to something only they can talk about. <laughs> You'll see in George. <laughs> What else is happening? Um, we made the decision uh, today to have the, the, the retreat in December in person. So if you're longing for an in-person retreat, our, our uh, winter retreat will be in person. Uh, and then that takes us to the end of the year. Um, thank you for coming to this. I really appreciate your practice. I offer the teachings freely, um, but I do hope that you'll make a donation and help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Uh, you can find a link to make a donation on the site or uh, if uh, there's usually one in the email that you receive. Thanks so much and we will see you soon. Bye now. Thank you.